this week on The Futurists. You know, we're entering into a world where we have to hybridize our decision-making with machine intelligence. And so when we think about a, a human intelligence, whether that's at the individual level or at the collective human intelligence level, where are the advantages you know, that we have on the human side that can actually outperform machine intelligence? Because I think that is a monolithic idea that people generally have, that machine intelligence will always outperform human intelligence, that it is necessarily better. Well, it is uh, good to identify where we add value in the future system, right? Exactly. And so, but you can't do that unless you measure it. You simply cannot do that unless you establish certain benchmarks. Hello, and welcome to The Futurists, where we're interested in talking to the people who anticipate, influence, and invent the future. I'm Rob Tursick. And I'm Brett King. Welcome to our podcast. Today, our guest is a polymath, someone who's skilled in a number of different fields, but fields that are really relevant to this topic of forecasting and, and anticipating the future. Our guest today is Regina Joseph. She is a super forecaster, and we'll get into exactly what that means in just a minute. She's also a cognitive science researcher, and she's launched a number of interesting projects. So in this show, we'll talk a little bit about how she got into super forecasting, and then later we'll get into some of the new things that she's working on because they're super relevant to this idea of futurists. Well, welcome to the show, Regina. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you guys, and uh, thank you. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's start off with the question everybody's probably wondering about. What the heck is a super forecaster? Yeah, it's... You um, have to wear a cape. <laughs> I know, we get that all the time. Uh, and I do have a cape somewhere, but probably not the ones that most people have in their heads. But uh, uh, so the, the term super forecaster actually comes from a uh, research program uh, that began in 2011 and uh, ran for four years until 2015. And it was funded by the intelligence community in the United States, um, uh, IARPA, which stands for the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, uh, which is basically, it's the research and development arm of the intelligence community, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in the United States. And they run high-risk, high-payoff experiments that are basically designed to avoid surprise. Um, and so many people are familiar with DARPA. DARPA is the sort of analogous division for the Department of Defense. IARPA is for the intelligence community. And so they, they both, uh, you know, DARPA was really behind the development of what we now know as the Internet. So the kinds of things that most people uh, trickle down into most people's lives are developed maybe 10, sometimes 15, 20 years before through these kinds of R&D agencies. They, they put a lot of money in helping to develop experimental research and that often, uh, you know, they they are the future, right? They're, they're, they're in the business of funding. What, what problem was IARPA trying to solve when they set up the Future Casters program? So... Uh, at the time of IARPA's creation, you know, this was just after, uh, this was in around 2006, but, you know, there was a lot of concern that uh, uh, the type of uh, global conflicts that the United States was experiencing, the types of global outcomes uh, that people around the world were witnessing, uh, didn't seem to be affected by the intelligence and information that was coming to experts like people working in the intelligence community. And so why weren't we able to detect 9-11? Why weren't we able to detect the fall of the Berlin Wall? Why weren't we able to do something about even recently like the evacuation of Afghanistan? There's always a question of whether or not the experts that are deployed to make predictions or forecasts about outcomes in the future, whether or not those are the best people that you have. So I also invited a group, uh, several groups of teams, right, to, to, to start to predict, do forecasts and predictions. But one team did particularly well, as I recall. That's right. And a lot of the inspiration for that research from the beginning came from a book written by Philip Tetlock, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he wrote a book called Expert Political Judgment. And basically what that book was, was a, a, a sort of a serial examination over many years of millions of forecasts made by pundits, experts, people who have the sort of public legitimacy and authority to claim expertise over a particular area 
area of, of interest. And so what he what he did in that book was examine is there a correlation between expertise and accuracy in prediction, especially mm-hmm. around areas geopolitics and economics. And so that book came out and uh, in 2006. And so IARPA was interested in thinking, you know, maybe we should test that out. And so they build, like DARPA does, they build their uh, uh, experimental programs uh, around competitions where people are invited to submit proposals to a question that is postulated by the by, by, by IARPA and DARPA. And so teams are invited to make these proposals. And then there's a process of selection where maybe three or four teams will get to compete against each other. Phil Tetlock, had his own team called the Good Judgment Project. And that was not only one of the original four teams that was part of the ACE program when it began in 2011, but it also became the winning team. And I was a member so of that. So he proved his thesis. Yes, and 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 then some. And, uh, you know, because before this, there I think there was a certain amount of skepticism, uh, uh, both uh, in the public sector and the private sector, as to whether or not, well, you know, certainly... Uh, some experts are very good at, at, at prediction, uh, but it turns out that actually people are often surprised uh, by uh, the lack of direct correlation in certain cases between that type of expert credentialing and the accuracy of... of in in of fact, I think Telog's team wasn't even comprised of so-called experts. It was comprised of people who had better thinking habits that he had, you know, he had kind of attracted and then sifted through to find the people with the best thinking skills. And you know quite a lot about that. Can you tell us about the attributes of somebody who's considered a super forecaster? What makes them a super forecaster? Sure. Um, well, uh, uh, Phil and 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 his wife and and the co-principal and one of the co-principal investigators of the, of that experiment, Barb Mellers, you know what they were looking at was identifying some of the psychometrics or or the sort of uh, traits of what is is related to the propensity for being good at forecasting. And I think to refine, I mean, I, I think a lot of the focus was well, you know, the people in the Good Judgment Project, Phil and Barb's team, uh, were not ex. Experts. That's not entirely true. Some of us actually do this for a living. I was already working at a think tank doing exactly this, was building out a futures division for a think tank to make geopolitical predictions. Right, an expert in futurism, but you weren't necessarily an expert in, de- in defense or intelligence or foreign policy That's or figuring out what foreign exactly governments... That I was, no, I, I was. I, I, oh, I was see. Okay. foreign policy at a think tank, uh, the, the largest foreign policy think, one of the largest foreign policy think tanks in Europe. So so, so that was exactly what I was doing and had 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 already credentials around that. So, and there were also a few other super forecasters who did uh, similarly have that. But in general, uh, uh, many of the people who were involved in the experiment and who became identified as super forecasters were people who were not working in the world of making predictions about geopolitical situations and economic situations. But what was interesting was, you know, the commonality behind the traits that we share. So things like m- most of us are kind of numbers nerds. Uh, we did very well on uh, the types of psychometric uh, um, assessments like number series, Berlin numeracy. These are tests that measure how good are you at detecting patterns in numbers? How good are you at being able to assign numeric probabilities and make numeric estimations about things rather than using words? And that also speaks to a longstanding concern within the intelligence community about the quality of making a prediction. You know, uh, it's one thing to say whether or not you think that uh, uh, an outcome X is likely or unlikely. But there's a lot of wiggle room uh, between what likely means to Brett versus what likely means to Robert. And so uh, and, and so uh, some of the side experimentation that was occurring during the ACE program period, uh, which was done by Phil and Barb and others in, involved on the team, was looking at this idea of quantifying what those words mean. And when we do when 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 you do that, you realize there's so much ambiguity in terms of what that means that you're actually leaving something like 20% uh, a, a 20% difference in accuracy on the table so, if you're using 
words rather than numbers. And so that that was a big part of understanding how do we communicate this? What kind of process are we using to enable better uh, predictive assessment? So, Regina, you've mentioned psychometrics. Um, Obviously, you mentioned you're talking about the statistical side of things. But often this, you know, when we're trying to predict the future or look at how uh, systems are going to respond to that, we're either looking at individual human behavior or collective human behavior. So how much of the art of this is understanding the behavior of humans and historical precedents that can impose themselves on a on a, uh, a forecasting model that's a really great question because i think that leads to a lot of the current work that we are dealing with now you know sort of years after the end of the ace program which is about you know we're entering into a world where we have to hybridize our decision making with machine intelligence and so when we think about a a human intelligence, whether that's at the individual level or at the collective human intelligence level, where are the advantages that we have on the human side that can actually outperform machine intelligence? Because I think that is a a monolithic idea that people generally have, that machine intelligence will always outperform human intelligence, that it is necessarily better. Well, it is Uh, good to identify where we add value in the future system, right? Exactly. (laughs) And so, but you can't do that unless you measure it. You simply cannot do that unless you establish certain benchmarks. And so going back to your point, one of the things that I've been involved in and that I'm doing in my current research is is looking at identifying what Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize uh, in uh, decision theory, and which also is one of the cornerstone foundational sets of ideas that powered the ACE program, the the IARPA research program, and, and a lot of the anticipatory intelligence concepts that have been coming from it, is this idea of when you are trying to make a decision about something, most people are going to make a gut decision. Most people are not going to take a step back and think, yes, but what are the statistical realities about uh, uh, whether something right. is going to happen or not happen, right? Most and people they, default to their personal... They make a gut decision and then they look for evidence to support their decision. So they're going with confirmation bias. Right, you know? right. Correct. But what Daniel Kahneman was looking at was this idea, um, you know, which is known as outside thinking, uh, at the statistical level, you know, what, what we're looking, you know, we would call that the base rate. You know, what is the historical uh, uh, rate of occurrence of an event that you could use to uh, build a more accurate prediction about things that have yet to happen? So, so, so being able to identify a base rate is one of the keystones of what I work on in my research. Uh, um, and also, which is what we've seen in, in, in our work, especially in terms of the work that I do in establishing a systemic process, you know, the base rate is everything. How okay. you find it, how you present it to the end user, how you can adjust away from it. So all of those are absolutely critical factors in sharpening the accuracy of a, of a forecast or a prediction. So give us a for instance, because this is pretty high level. So is there uh, what, what's an example of a base rate that, you know, so let's say we wanted to forecast a scenario about um, tech adoption, you know, maybe maybe uh, VR and AR and XR yeah. and these these new technologies that are coming. So we could formulate all kinds of predictions, but they would be based on anecdotal stuff, uh, you know, reports in the press, what we've gathered, maybe some numbers about, you know, headsets that have been sold. Yeah, That's not, as you're saying, that's that's sort of a trap, right? Because we're likely to make an inaccurate forecast based on, on just kind of a randomly assembled data. You're proposing a base rate. So what would the base rate be for something like that? How would we go about constructing a better model for making a forecast? Well, um, you know, I'm uh, so so. VR is a great example. I mean, I had I, been doing work in VR as uh, as early as the early '90s. You know, okay. so so this is something that has been around and has been in development for mm-hmm. many decades, right. and so and yet, right before CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, every year it's one of the biggest uh, 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 one of the biggest tech shows in the world annually. Uh, they're always predictive roundups, right? Mm-hmm. Every newspaper has them. You know, they ask a bunch of experts and pundits, you know, what do you think is going to be the hot thing at CES? What do you think? Because CES is held in the spring. It's yeah. usually... And it's uh, a like, bunch of people spitballing ideas about whatever they think is hot. Let's get real. Those end of the year forecasts about technology are bullshit. 
are BS. And so, so, and, and, and for, for a period of about 10 years, I was being asked year after year, uh, from like around 2013 up until even like a few years ago, I would get a call from newspapers like the guardian or whatever saying, what, what, what do you think? You know, everybody says VR is going to be really hot. And I said, this is exactly what everybody's been saying every single year. Uh, <laughs> and so if it wasn't hot then, and you still haven't sold through, you know, a, a sort of minimum viable level of uptake in American households at a certain price point level, you know, you're always going to be in this setup where yeah, VR is going to be the next big thing. Okay. Every- but hang on, hang on a sec. I'm sorry to bust in here, but hang on a sec. So if someone were to say, well, okay, VR, it's one of those industries where the sun never really rises. So my prediction for next year is VR is also going to be disappointing. Um, they would have been right for the last five or six years because there's been a lot of hype since 2017. Every year it's like, oh, this is the year of VR and that doesn't actually happen. But they'd be wrong eventually, right? It might be this year that they'd be wrong because Facebook's going to sell 10, min- 10 million units of the of the Oculus Quest uh, 2, which is a pretty good headset. It's really the first decent headset, right? 10 million is a pretty important benchmark, right? That's sort of like, you're talking about Sony PlayStation level, you know, when the first version of PlayStation came out, that was a big turning point in the game console business. So narrowly defined, you could say, well, things are starting to trend differently now. Okay, let's get back to the base rate. So what's our base rate in that scenario where we're trying to guess exactly. next year? So what you're going to be looking for are a couple of different things. Uh, first of all is the temporal scope problem. This is one of the biggest issues that people have in being uh, uh, in getting good at forecasting is being able to actually determine the time period of when a future event will occur. Uh, typically, pundits, when they make forecasts, they'll say, well, there's going to be a recession. Yeah, eventually. But yeah. if you're making it on year X and by year X, nothing has happened, you you weren't very sensitive to the temporal scope of your prediction, right? It, it, if it happens 15 years later, 20 years later, well, then it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, so so temporal scope is, is is a big problem. So part of the secret in being able to extract better accuracy has a lot to do with not just about the forecast, it's about the questions that you ask. And so that is one of the areas that we specialize in too, is this idea of question generation. Asking the right questions is a form of metaphorecasting. You have to be able to formulate a question in a way that it's still going to matter a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. It it should make the forecasts, it it should allow the forecast to remain relevant. Uh, so, So if somebody says, yeah, VR is going to be a big hit this Christmas, Okay. I mean, Robert, you just posed something which could be molded into a tenable question. So by uh, Christmas of 2021, will Facebook sell 10 million VR headsets? That's a great, that's a great question to posit. Now the issue becomes, what's your forecast? And this is where you need to start to integrate the idea of the base rate is, okay, let me think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. How many VR headsets got sold last year? How many VR headsets got sold the year before that? Let me look at it. We so so at Pitho, my company here, my research partner and I, Pavla Tanasov, we we talk about um, what we call the the base rate rule of ten, right? Take ten incremental units of uh, prior history, whereby you can establish some kind of a pattern. The, the right? answer so, for twenty twenty is five point five million units. Right. So there you go. So uh, so so if we start to assemble that, well, if Facebook is projecting 10 million, you know, and we're looking at numbers that uh, look perhaps quite different from that projection, right, then your job as a forecaster is starting to make granular adjustments between what are previous rates of occurrence, what is, a, say, for example, an estimate that somebody makes about a future outcome, and uh, what are all the other factual uh, bits of information? What are all the variables and parameters that you need to take into account to refine that granular adjustment? You're sort of, let's say you get a base rate. We have X number of VR headsets sold at this point in time as of the time of this question. Okay, that's a, that's a good data point to have. But then if you're going to try to refine that judgment, what you want to think about is, okay, well, what are the price points of these headsets? 
what is the ratio of the price point of the headset to the actual sell through of the headset? And how often has that happened every single time a new headset gets uh, uh, gets released onto the mar- into the marketplace? So game consoles and smartphones could be a proxy there for seeing what Absolutely. the price point is. I would be looking at that data as well. I would be looking at comparative rates of uptake, you know, in certain types of devices and gear that have some kind of similar function, entertainment, knowledge development, you know, look at the rates of adoption for those products and look for similarities. Are they made by the same manufacturers? Uh, uh, where is the seller in different regions in the world, right? So, so y- you have to apply, you know, a, a very specific process of systemic reasoning, right? You, you have to start first with, uh, basically, y- y- you want to develop some inductive reasoning about the problem, right? You're, you're, you're trying to think through, well, what are all of the elements that I need to sort of put into the mix in order to understand this problem and to generate a reasonable response? And so in terms have- of, it, Regina, in terms of that base rate, um, you know, like how much of that involves you actually learning about the domain to successfully come up with that base rate versus using analogies from other forecasts that you've had? Again, a great question because that goes right to the heart of the idea of expertise. And we are dealing with that problem uh, very directly in the current research that we do called Human Forest, which is We're focusing, so I'm going to answer your question with an example. So right now, our current research focuses on, it's called human forest, and it focuses on the area of clinical trial transitions for new drugs, right? The process of a drug. It's a really good thing to be investigating right now for obvious reasons. Exactly. And, and, And we did it for very temporal reasons. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of change happening in the uh, in the traditional uh, uh, rollout of how a drug goes through from development to approval and to marketing in the public domain. So, so what happens in that space? You would assume, lots of people assume that well, if you're setting up an environment where you're asking people to make predictions on will drug X, you know, uh, transition from phase two to phase three testing. Or will drug Y uh, receive clinical approval to market the drug by X date, right? These are all great things you can forecast on. Most people, if you ask them, would say, oh, the people who would perform the best in that type of a contest would likely be people who work in the life sciences, clinicians, doctors, pharmaceutical executives, researchers. That would be a very logical and rational expectation on the part of most people. Uh, the reality is, is that that's not what we see in the research. And, and that has a lot to do with how do you present the information? How do you format that information? What kinds of additive information are you offering to those people? What we've seen is that our non-experts, lay people, people with zero professional background in the life sciences, biology, medicine, medical research, uh, these people actually outperformed experts. And so- this goes back to, you know, and again, you know, Phil uh, has done a lot of that foundational work in establishing that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why experts don't always get it right. Uh, and much of that has to do with certain psychological issues. Um, if you are in a small field of experts, uh, consensus matters because that involves reputational risk if you go out on a limb and get it wrong. Regina, um, let's let's hold off on that for a second because I want to make sure we delve deep into the blind spots and the cognitive bias uh, after we go to break. This is super interesting stuff. Let me uh, let's take us to break. Uh, just for for those of you that just joined us, uh, we're talking to Regina Joseph, the cognitive scientist, um, and. Uh, uh, super forecaster from the School of International Futures. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. 
Hi, and welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and me, Rob Tursick. And today our guest is Regina Joseph, and she's a cognitive science researcher with an expertise in forecasting. Super relevant topic for our show. In the previous half, we were talking about methodologies and some of the background and uh, some of the reasoning, how uh, a group of, of forecasters and people who are interested in, led by a psychologist named Philip Tetlock, started to notice something that's really important, which is that expertise doesn't always mean that you're going to make accurate forecasts. Sometimes expertise brings with it a bunch of institutional blind spots, and those blind spots actually, when you start to measure out the results, uh, really track the results of the forecast, over time, what we can see is that sometimes experts are no better or more accurate than flipping a coin. In fact, a 50-50 forecast uh, track record is pretty good for most experts. One of the people who established that early on is Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist and researcher into cognitive bias, and of course, famously, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Now, Regina, this part of the show, what I want to talk about, and I think Brett and I are both keenly interested in is how do people get it wrong? How do these people who are so smart, so steeped in the information and so knowledgeable about the subject matter, how do they have blind spots? What are the cognitive biases that get in their way? I've seen it so often in the banking space, for example. You know, I was just in Switzerland last week with the Swiss Bankers Association and I'm meeting bankers that say, no, 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 people are always going to prefer to to, uh, do banking with a human. And I'm like, that's not even true now, let alone in the future, right? But yeah, how do we we get around those blind spots, Regina? Well, I think overconfidence is 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 one of the most common problems uh, that 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 uh, uh, people who wish to make forecasts need to overcome. Uh, I think that and 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 certainly Kahneman identified this that you know we everybody thinks they're good at forecasting. Everybody uh, does. A natural yeah. tendency that we have. We think that our decision making is pretty good. Our process is pretty good. The reality is is that when you put that to the test. Yeah, most people are pretty lousy. <laughs> it's like people who trade stocks. They always tell you about the stocks they picked that went up, but they never talk about the stocks that they, you know, that, where they blew it, where they got it completely wrong. And then over time, in their own mind, because they're telling that story over and over again, what they start to believe is that all of their picks are good. That they're, that they're quite good at this. Uh, so it's it's really astonishing to me that the um, we blind ourselves, you know, by repeating this story over and over again. One of the things that uh, Daniel Kahneman did so well was reveal the heuristics. I'm not sure if I'm saying that exactly right, but this idea that there are mental shortcuts we take because it's quite difficult to actually think about your thought process. And so we always take a shortcut. Some of those heuristics uh, include things like the availability heuristic, you know, where you use the most recent example and that's your kind of baseline, if you will. It's like a fake baseline for predicting the next thing that's going to occur. But, but it's not. there's not enough historical continuity there for that to be valid. Another one we talked about a moment ago is confirmation bias, where we make a decision about what's going to happen. Then we search for information that supports our opinion rather than disprove it. It's like the opposite of the scientific method. Regina, can you tell us a little bit more about cognitive bias? Well, um, I, I think that it, the... I think the simplest way to talk about it is that we we all have them um, and they are very, very difficult. Uh, even when you're aware of them, uh, they're very, very difficult to mitigate. And so uh, it does require really understanding how to identify them. Uh, most people really don't know. Uh, uh, if you if you ask somebody to identify a general bias uh, that that sort of factors into their thinking, most people I think would hem and haw about what what does that even mean. Um, you know, so so uh, just being able to identify what are common biases that all of us are are sort of subject to confirmation bias, uh, overconfidence, uh, hindsight bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it, just even being able to know what are the types of, um, mental actions that we typically tend to undertake when we're making decisions. That's a good well, start. One of the things I found so striking in both Kahneman's work and also in Philip Tetlock's book, Super Forecasters, is um, is about political beliefs or political convictions. And so here's a question for the audience to consider. Who do you think would make a more accurate forecast about a political election? Uh, 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 someone who's who's a very staunch advocate for one party or the other, who's you know extremely committed to politics and particularly to a particular party, or someone who's relatively neutral? That's a good question to ask. And I know you know the answer, Regina. So tell us about that and how that actually works out. 
Um, yeah, we we uh, I think the 2016 election was a fantastic uh, use case uh, for for uh, examining that. And 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 actually, my my research partner and I uh, we we did exactly do that. We we published a story in the Washington Post about um, who, who got at least wrong. Um, you know, because everybody got it right, right? All the pundits were wrong. A hundred percent of them were completely incorrect. Not a hundred, not a hundred percent, but it, it was pretty close. I mean, uh, I, I tell I, you, I got it wrong. Me too. Most people did, and you know, I mean, if you want a funny story, I, um, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, 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 the work that I do, uh, uh, I, I do a lot of work with with governments in Europe. And I was in the office of a senior political advisor, um, and we were talking about the upcoming 2016 election. And uh, and he said, "Well, you're from New York, you know. Do, you know, Hillary's going to win, right?" And I said, "Well, I just cannot possibly imagine, you know, that." And and, and this was my New York native bias coming out. I thought there's simply no way. Uh, that uh, uh, Donald Trump could become the 45th president of this country because certainly, you know, people will come to uh, see him in the same light that we in New York see him, right? right? The majority of New Yorkers see him in a very particular light. And uh, so that was, and so I was saying this to the advisor and both of us were sort of shaking our heads thinking, yeah, you know, it's very unlikely that he's going to win about Three weeks after I had that conversation was the uh, FBI announcement about going back in to investigate Hillary's records. I changed my forecast on that, but not closely enough, not close enough to the temporal scope, not close enough to the end to get my score at a really good level. But that was an example. When I saw the same advisor, maybe a few months later, both of us had, at least at that point in time, when we were discussing it, both of us were wildly wrong. That was a clear example of my bias in presuming that everybody would see things the way I, a native New Yorker who had a long experience with Donald Trump, the way I would see it, that was clearly wrong. That was a good lesson for me. Um, and and so when I saw this advisor a few months later uh, and he said, boy, we, we both flubbed that one. I said, yeah, we certainly flubbed that one. Even my adjustments towards the end was not significant enough, you know, to really make it a, a good forecast. You're bringing up but, a very good point too, which is that where you are like physically on the planet is actually going to affect your perspective, right? So you're in New York, I'm yeah. here in the super liberal bubble of Los Angeles. And so we have a distorted... It's hard to understand that, but we do live with a distorted view because everybody around us thinks the same way. And by the way, the same thing's true in the red states, right? So in the red states, it's unthinkable you know, that, that Donald Trump could have lost the, the most recent election um, because everybody around them was pretty much a fan. And so you know, they saw widespread signs of support. And, and so one of the things you have to get in the habit of uh, is, is checking your geographic uh, place, you know, like how how is that blinding you? Uh, who you're with, the people you surround yourself with. One of the ways to counter the cognitive bias is to align yourself with people who can challenge your thought process. And I know you right. work with a business partner, Pavel, for that very reason. It's like two brains are better than one. And even, you know, in, in the super forecasting technique, it's a group. It's always a group. Uh, so talk a little bit about how other people can help us see our own blind spots. Yeah, I, I um, you know, uh, one I one of the things that I think uh, uh, works really well in environments, especially you know, most decision making takes place in groups, in teams. So learning what is a good process to arrive at some kind of a predictive insight when you have to do it with a bunch of people. And what we know is that yes, diversity in thought makes the collective intelligence. Uh, 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 more powerful in many cases, but there is also a step that you need to take before you get to that collective discussion, which is independent estimation. It's better, even if you're operating in a team, it's better that every single individual within that group makes their own independent estimate about what they think is going to happen 
before they start talking with other people so that they are not allowing potential groupthink bias mm-hmm. or anchoring bias or other types of biases. I mean, if if I'm working and I, this happens a lot, you know, I'm usually I often find myself the only woman in a room or one of very few numbers of women in a room. So there are biases associated with that. The minute I walk before I even open my mouth, there are going to be perceptions about that. So how do you circumvent those kinds of biases? How do you circumvent those kinds of problems that arise in the accuracy space? So the first step is make independent estimations. Uh, this, this, also, this also comes back to team selection, Regina. So, you know, I mean, I, you, you've talked about this, um, you know, in terms of the uh, the forecasting teams for IAPA and so forth. Um, but, you know, how do you go through that process of, team selection do you purposely pick people without domain expertise for example or um you know as a as a as a reference um at the experimental level we uh do random assignments so so we we we, to, to to maintain the ability to really detect whether or not our systems are working or not we usually do not uh uh pre select people to be in certain groups However, uh, in the case of uh, some of the research that we're doing, it's not who we want to be in specific cohorts. What we're looking at is to see how the system applies to certain types of samples. So in our case, what we're doing is we have one group made of people who are super forecasters, people who have been shown to be very consistent Uh, very consistently accurate over an extended period of time. So that's one discrete group. We have another discrete group of people who are life sciences professionals, people who are experts in this field. And then we have people who are total lay people, zero uh, forecasting experience and zero uh, biomedical experience. But those folks actually have have some elements in common, some traits in common. Uh, They read widely. They read eclectically. They don't hold very fixed political beliefs, as I kind of alluded to in the previous comment or question. Uh, they're, They're flexible thinkers. And I think it's also important for people to understand they're not fixated on their prediction. They're perfectly willing to change their prediction. As you explained, you know, with the 2016 election, uh, the super forecasters are quite comfortable saying, oh, new information has come in and therefore we're going to modulate uh, a little bit. We're going to moderate the, and change our, our prediction, our forecast a little bit uh, be, based on that new information. And, and some people are too fixated, like they're too rigid. I made my forecast, I'm going to stick to it. And that's almost a recipe for going wrong. So, so I think even if the folks are not experts in a particular subject matter, they do share some common traits, even if they come from divergent backgrounds. Yeah, and I think that the key thing is that it's a trainable skill. So, so yes, super forecasters have a propensity to do this naturally, but for people who don't, uh, you can teach them. Uh, well, in fact, that's what you're doing now. Can you talk a little bit about your program? Because this is a good opportunity for yeah. those who are listening to learn that this is actually something you can you can you can improve. Tell us about it. Thanks. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so uh, well, basically, since 2012, I've been developing training programs and how to get people who don't have uh, uh, this natural kind of super forecast or propensity, but who need to be able to make good decisions, good forecasts, um, uh, teach them a step-by-step process on how to be a better forecaster, how to think like someone uh, who makes forecasts professionally, how to do that well. Uh, and much of it is really about practice. Uh, it's you, you need to get them in an environment where they can just make a forecast because most people have never done that before. Just or they haven't be- done it. They haven't done it in a disciplined way. I mean, we make forecasts every day. We decide what clothes to wear, whether or not to bring an umbrella. You know, people yeah, do that exactly. on kind of an intuitive level, but they don't think about their process. And one of the keys to becoming a better forecaster is to start to expose your thought process and become familiar with it. This is the idea of thinking about thinking. And all the authors we've mentioned so far, they write deeply about this because it takes a great deal of skill. It's also very hard for people to figure out how to think about their thought process. Is that one of the things that you train people on, Regina? Yes. Um, so metacognition or thinking about thinking is, is essential. uh, Metacognition. I love that one. Yeah. And, and so, so, uh, what, what we really are trying to get people to do is to, uh, take a step back uh, you know, go into that system two mode of thought uh, that Daniel Kahneman talks about, and uh, to really uh, be careful about 
where they might uh, where they uh, uh, might fall down uh, in in their process and where they can boost that process. And one of the things that is so important for us, both as researchers as well as people who are who have a job of making people better forecasts and providing highly accurate forecasts, is getting people used to this idea of um, the 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 simple act of um, training in an environment where, you know, it, it goes back to a little bit of what you were saying, Robert. Um, when 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 I describe for people who've never done forecasting before, the first part is to get them to frame it differently. Every single decision that we make, every single one of them, it's a bet on a future outcome. It's a bet on something is yet to happen. So everything that we do decision-wise ultimately could be regarded as a forecast. We just don't think about it that way. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put it. And the, the, the science fiction author, David Brin, who someday will get on this show, he is very bold about saying, I'll place a bet on that. He's perfectly willing to put his money where his mouth is about his forecast. He's always challenging people in social media to, yeah. to place put their money where their mouth is. It's a good idea. And one of the groups of people that Tetlock identified that are consistently very good at this are people who invest in stocks. Uh, the people who have been successful with that, again, they they tune their bets. They're constantly you know, adjusting their position based on new information. They don't just buy it and hold it all the time. Uh, so, so there's a certain set of skills that can be taught. And that's an interesting thing. So for those who are interested, uh, what URL should they go to, Regina, to find out about learning how to be a better forecaster? Uh, so uh, they can go to, uh, uh, the easiest way to do it is to go to www.pytho.io. Uh, and um, if you look at uh, A-R-E-T-E, Arete, that's uh, where you can sign up and we can send you more information about our training programs and about our research. Uh, there are a variety of things that we can offer to people if they want to look at it more from the scientific side, if they want to just learn and develop the skill. Uh, if they go to www.pitho.io, they can find a lot of information about that. And you can also reach me on uh, uh, Twitter uh, or LinkedIn. Um, and and I, I think we could probably put the addresses on, uh, 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 you know. Yeah, we'll post yeah, that we information. We'll get all that social media bump. Cool. So, Joe, so Regina, there were a couple of things you talked about before we started recording that were super interesting. In re- remaining time, tell us about the anticipatory intelligence movement and the workshop and what you're doing with the National Science Foundation. So I think that there's definitely a, uh, well, there's certainly a group of people who have been working on these problems in a variety of different places, coming at it from uh, different perspectives, but still maintaining the same focus on a lot of what we've discussed in this last hour, um, the work of people like Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers and, and Daniel Kahneman, and how we interpret what uh, they learned in their research and how we're adapting it as time moves forward. Uh, again, uh, w- what we're looking at in our work has a lot to do with the hybridization of human intelligence with machine intelligence. And you know, this has a lot of uh, this has a lot of potential ramifications uh, for our safety, our security, our knowledge. Um, I, I think we've seen certain examples where it doesn't go right. Um, I, I think. Um, uh, the, the, the key is to get people, the, and this is the really hard part, um, is so much of this is about giving people the sense of learning a process, learning a high quality system that has a lot to do with uh, developing a taste for nuance. And uh, that is a tough thing uh, for people to develop. Uh, there are a lot of factors that make it harder for people to do that. So taste for nuance is what you're saying. Uh, example. So I think that uh, uh, when when the pandemic hit uh, last year, I think there was uh, so much confusion, so much chaos uh, that people were uh, um, they were focusing a lot of attention on certain types of drugs uh, uh, because they were in the press a lot. So you would see those, you would see those brand names, uh, you would see those company names. Before that, I mean, m- most people would would never talk about something like uh, recombinant DNA or, you know, uh, CRISPR gene editing or genomic sequencing. People talk about it now. Uh, but back then, <clears throat> you know, there was such a, uh, there was such a, 
uh, a, a lack of nuance around what was happening, mostly because of fear and panic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Disinformation campaigns and people for, recommending drinking bleach and so forth. You know, there was just a lot of bad information and it was hard for people to sort through it. And the scientific process takes a long time. The FDA moved notoriously slowly to come out with any kind of pronouncements so people weren't sure where to get their guidance from. That's a big issue is the media environment around us influences us. You know, if you see 10 headlines saying that Mark Zuckerberg thinks that Facebook will be the metaverse, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising for most people to arrive at the conclusion that that's probably going to happen, even if it's just a press release, you know, even if it's just a, a concerted press push. It's widely understood in politics, but it's also true for companies. Companies are trying to craft a perception about where they're going to be in the future. They're trying to influence shareholders and the stock market. And so they put out these, they put out, they use sort of media disinformation campaigns to kind of influence people's thinking. A big part of the work that you do is to kind of illuminate that and show people, hey, you know, your media diet is going to influence the thoughts that are inside of your head. And eventually those ideas are going to take root. You might start to believe them, uh, whether or not they're based on any kind of fact. Yeah. Uh, you know what? You mentioned uh, the pandemic and I have to ask you this question because it always, this has been on my mind. So nothing was easier to forecast. Literally nothing was easier to forecast than COVID-19. For 20 years, we've been hearing from everybody in the field of epidemiology that there was going to be another kind of global uh, breakout of some kind of highly communicable disease. And, and, and when and it broke, we, had we very well developed plans on how to ha tackle it. That's exactly right. There were teams ready to, although they had been kind of deactivated in the U.S. in some cases. But, you know, like Lori Nadell wrote a book called The Next Plague in like 2003 or four. It's been around for a long time. There were books that came out just a year before. And even uh, one scientist had said, look, it'll be a coronavirus. It'll come from a bat in the Wuhan area. Like this was not, this does not require like rocket scientists. You could just read what was already published and understand this was coming. So here we had a case where there were excellent forecasts available, but the people in charge ignored the forecasts. So what's yeah. that called? I think of that as like the Cassandra syndrome, you know, where you've got somebody outside of the temple telling you exactly what's going to happen. Don't go there. It's going to be bad. And then Agamemnon's like, nope, send the ships off to Troy. We're going. So what do you think of that? I love that we've got so many sort of Greco-Roman, you know, sort of classical <laughs> references, you know, flowing through this conversation. Um, you know, I, I think that, that is part of the problem, right? Is, 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 is that's one small part of the problem. But as to the reasons why leaders, decision makers don't follow through on copious amounts of evidence or copious amounts of data that they've got sitting in front of them to make the right decision, there are so many variables that affect that actual decision-making process that, yes, Cassandra Complex is part of it, but there are other, you know, political liabilities, right? Uh, 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 personal incentives, right? Whether it's greed or power or, you know, so so it, it's not just about, um, you know, the, the sort of cognitive factors at stake, like uh, overconfidence or uh, uh, there are so many layers uh, to a decision, especially at a high level, that you, you know, and what we, we try to do is to kind of decompose that. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if we're kind of looking back at forecasts that go wrong, what are all the possible pathways where the decision making took a wrong, you know, took the wrong side of the fork? Um, and so, so that's a very complex process. And part of what we're talking about now, part of what we're thinking about is, is, is how do we make getting through that process a little easier? But I often find that in decision-making at a high level, it's really down to, usually it's the person who has the most money, most power, most seniority. They do what they want. They're often not as easily influenced as you think they might be. Fantastic. Well, that's uh, I, I, maybe let me just um, finish with one question um, so we can wrap this up, Regina. Um, you know, if if you're talking to the average person out there today, could you give them a list of actions to take or ways to change their their lifestyle so that they're better placed for the future? Yeah, uh, uh, I think that the, the first thing is to be informed. Uh, uh, being well-informed really is the cornerstone of, of, of being a good forecaster or, or just making good decisions, uh, is, is to be well-informed to and update yourself 
on that information. It's not enough to know a fact one day and then just sort of let it alone until you have to make a decision years later. So and I think read we- eclectically across the many different disciplines. Like people get yeah. stuck in a bubble, right? They get a habit and then they get okay. reinforced. Uh, they, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you. No, no. It's it, it be be diverse in your thought. Uh, uh, it's it's be well informed. Be diverse in your thought. Have a process, right? And and that can start very easily with something as simple as you know, learning how to make a decision table, uh, you know, where you are basically evaluating what are the, what's the trade-off I'm making if I have to make a decision, where are the trade-offs? Then you're, you just have to score which trade-offs are the worst ones, <laughs> you know, which are the least, uh, uh, the least acceptable adverse trade-offs that I have to make. Uh, just being able to do that is a good start. Um, you know, and, and so what we do is to try to provide processes by which people can at least learn how to do that stuff quickly and easily. And the more you practice it, the more you put yourself in an environment where you are testing yourself and tracking yourself. Because again, much of what we talk about is about, uh, you know, we, we, we go back to, you know, there are lots of people out there in the world who say that they're futurists. But if they aren't tracking themselves in an environment where they can definitively say, yes, for the last 10 years, I have had a consistent track record and being able to accurately predict, here's my Briar score, you know, this is my performance in this year and this year and this year. Until you do that, you know, I, I think that we fall into the trap of calling people futurists, um, you know, people who are probably not that accurate, not, not that good at it. So, so when we talk about the track record issue, yeah, I think that we need to be putting more futurists in the environment where, okay, can you put your money where your mouth is? You're Uh, absolutely right, Regina. We're going to need a lot more futurists in the future, at least future minded people who we're trying to reach with this program because the world is changing fast and it's really important for people to develop their own methodology for navigating through that fast changing world. Now, folks, you're listening to The Futurists, and our guest today has been Regina Joseph. She is a super forecaster. She was actually one of the top performing super forecasters in that uh, IARPA program we talked about at the beginning of the show. She's also a cognitive science researcher and a geopolitical analyst, and you can learn more about her at her website, pytho.io, and you can also take a course there and learn how to become a super forecaster yourself. Now, you've been watching or listening to The Futurists with Brett King and me, Rob Tursik, and we will see you in In the the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.